Second Peter chapter two, starting verse the second half of verse ten. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. For whatever overcomes a person, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to, each of us individually, to deal with you this morning. I pray that we would not check out, that we would not too quickly um, conclude that what's going on in this text and what's going on in this church has nothing to do with our lives, as if the human heart is somehow different than it was in that day. I pray that you would just help us to reappropriate your word and apply it like an antidote to our own wounds and our own diseases and sicknesses of the heart. Just work in this time, Lord, to cut away anything that needs to be cut away and to establish faith where doubts currently reign. Do it for everyone in this room, I pray, for your glory, for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. It's a little disorienting when I open my eyes and the lights are on. I'm like, oh, you all see me. Um, but anyway, two weeks ago, news stations were buzzing um, with 
an event that happened to uh, involving this river out in Colorado called the Animus River. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news lately, but the Animus River is a 126-mile river that flows from southern Colorado down into New Mexico, and it's a famous tourist attraction, outdoorsy um, events take place there, fishing, um, tubing, all those type of things that happen on the water all take place there. Uh, here are some pictures, actually, just to show you, give you a glimpse of just this breathtaking river and this region. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. And on August 5th, so two weeks ago, there were some workers from the Environmental Protection Agency who were working in a mine that's located at one point along the river called the Golden King Mine, and their job there was using heavy equipment to pump out the uh, contaminated wastewater that had accumulated in this mine to keep it from ever uh, spilling over into the river. But on August 5th, they sprung a leak, a massive leak. And according to the U.S. Geological Survey, some 3 million gallons of this wastewater, of this heavy metal-filled wastewater spilled into the Animus River. That's about like 60,000 bathtubs full of wastewater, contaminated water. They took a sample shortly after the spill and tested it, and they said that the level of lead in this water was 12,000 times higher than the normal amount of lead found in water. And we know that even at low, almost indetectable levels of uh, lead, they can lead to child development problems and just learning disorders. There's all type of detrimental effects from lead. But that's not even the deadliest elements that they begin to find in this water. They said that there was arsenic in the water, beryllium, cadmium, mercury. All of these were found in the water. And actually, there's a, this is a before picture. Um, someone took a picture at one point on the river this is what the river looked like before the spill happened and then afterwards. And it was like that all the way down through Colorado, down into New Mexico, and even parts of Utah were heavily hit by this spill. Some of the residents that live in towns along the river, they're farming communities, and so they're worried that this contaminated water will begin to seep into their groundwater supply and poison their wells, and they only have about a 90-day, they said, um, reservoir of water in which they can live upon before they won't be able to live off the land anymore. Now, this, um, a week after the spill, the levels are starting to return back down to normal and um, the water's beginning to clear up, but no one's really sure of the long-term consequences of this spill, of these toxic elements in the water, the adverse health effects that they'll have. Some experts say it'll take years to discover that. But the reason that I wanted to bring this story up in the beginning and to show this picture is because I want that image of that contaminated, polluted water to be seared on your conscience as we walk through the text today. Just that picture of, of that dirty water, because I know that the temptation, especially when we walk through texts like this that seem extreme, the temptation is to say that 
Well, this is just an extreme example of depravity and of sinful actions that I really can't identify with. But the question that I want you to ask yourselves this morning is though I may not have drifted as far downstream, am I caught in the same current? Though, I'm, though I haven't drifted as far downstream as these false teachers have, am I caught in the same current? Am I entertaining the same patterns of thought that led to these depraved actions of these people in the church? Because what you believe necessarily affects what you do. What you do is determined by what you believe. As even Mahatma Gandhi wisely said once, he said that your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values and your values become your destiny. There is a natural correlation between what you believe and inevitably what you do. And so as we progress through the text, you need to be asking yourself, how can I redirect Peter's fire hose of fresh water towards my heart? Where has uh, the, the arsenic, the mercury, the lead of unbelief began to accumulate in my heart? Specifically, we're going to break up the text into three sections following three questions. And so uh, the questions are as follows. Speaking of the false teachers, these are the three questions. Number one, what were their beliefs? And I want you all just to be asking yourself, what are my beliefs? How, where do I see myself in this picture? What are my beliefs? Number two, what were their actions? Thinking, what are my actions? How do my beliefs lead to my actions? And number three, what were they seeking? What were their beliefs? What were their actions? And what were they actually seeking? Now, briefly, before we re-enter the drama, let's reset the scene. So this is the Apostle Peter writing. He's writing this letter towards the end of the first century, um, at least 30 years after Christ has died, been crucified and ascended. Um, he's writing to a church, the location of which is unknown to us. We're not sure which church he's writing to, but somewhere in the Eastern Greco-Roman world. And he's writing knowing that he will soon be executed that he's about to be killed. It's certain because the Christ, the one who's sovereign, the one who says that not a single hair from your head will perish apart from my decree, has decreed that his time has come. He says in chapter 1, verse 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. So he's on his way out, and he's certain of this. However, before his departure, he's compelled to address this devastating problem that's, that's disintegrating the church. There are leaders or galvanizing figures in the church that have acquired a, a dangerous doctrine. These are toxic teachings that have diffused into the church and some of the members have been exposed to them and they're now intentionally spreading that contagion of false doctrine to other members of the church. Last week, uh, Pastor Travis outlined for us 
Peter's initial account of how God has dealt with acts of rebellion and has dealt out punishment and salvation in ancient times past. He brings that, uh, those lessons to a head in verses 9 in the first half of verse 10 in chapter 2. This week, Peter turns his attention to the church. And it's here where we insert ourselves, armed with our first question, what are their beliefs? So intercene, verse 10, second half of verse 10. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. First off, when Peter says bold and willful, these aren't positive terms. Like when he says bold, another way of translating it is it's audacious, daring. Like you are in a stupid situation that you're putting yourself in. You're at risk. You're, you're kind of like this guy. Like that, like this isn't confident. Oh, look how confident he is. This is like, you're an idiot. You're in a very dangerous situation or even worse like this guy. It's funny, Carson, you know what type of people don't, don't do that. But we'll talk, leave that later. That's an inside joke. <clears throat> I'll share with you. We always have these conversations about, you always see like these outdoors, nature's guys. You don't see a lot of African-Americans doing this, this type of stuff. <laughs> we're just terrified of wild beasts and forests and animals. So we're not bold in this sense. We're bold in other areas negatively, but. <clears throat> but they're bold. They're willful, he says. And again, this isn't a, a positive term. This is negative. Willful, he means like they are... Um, self-interested, self-centered, self-willed. They're arrogant. Peter or, or Paul uses this term in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, when he's talking about the qualifications for pastors or elders. And he says, if anybody has this trait, they are immediately disqualified from exercising any type of oversight over the flock of God. Even outside of Christian circles of that day, this word was used by uh, men even like uh, a man named Ilias Aristides. He was a famous second century Greek orator who, who criticized other self-centered philosophers of his day. He said of them, they despise others while being themselves worthy of scorn. They criticize others without examining themselves. These are people who persist in their own opinions and they are uninterested in hearing the opinions of others. They're self-asserted. That's how, people, that's how Peter describes these individuals, bold and willful. And he describes them this way because he says, they do not tremble as they blaspheme or slander or talk irreverently of the glorious ones. He goes on in verse 11, the glorious ones, these are angels. He says, these angels that they're blaspheming, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. These are the glorious beings who inhabit eternity with the Father. That literally, when it says glorious, glory in the Hebrew is the word kavod, that literally means heavy, weighty. Like when they show up, their presence is oppressive almost. It's, it's overwhelming. When they show up, people drop like dead men, it says throughout the scriptures. They dwell in the presence of the Almighty. 
They are glorious. And what's interesting is, you know, if you read, if you're familiar with, with, with this book, 2 Peter and the book of Jude, you may notice before, you may come to notice that um, a lot of, especially chapter 2 of, of, of 2 Peter is very similar, almost identical to some of Jude. And most scholars would say that Jude was written earlier to uh, for a different audience. Second Peter, he was writing for a different audience, but he was using Jude as a guide and, and writing similar, uh, similarly to Jude, but appropriating where he felt something needed to be emphasized for his audience. I bring that up to say that in Jude, Jude has almost the same quote, and he just says, they blaspheme the glorious ones, but Peter says they blaspheme the glorious ones and they don't tremble when they do it. Like he saw that as something to emphasize. Not only is it bad enough that they speak irreverently of these majestic beings, but they don't tremble when they do it. You know what trembles according to scripture? Psalm 104 verse 32 says that God looks on the earth and it trembles. This 10,000 mile wide rock trembles from the glance of God. In a vision, the prophet Jeremiah, seeing the future time, he says in Jeremiah 4.24, I looked on the mountains and behold, they were trembling when God was bringing his judgment down. Even God, the Holy One himself, in Isaiah 66, verse 2, he says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and broken in spirit and who trembles at my word. And these people in the church refuse to tremble at anything. And and so what's happened? What's seeped in and contaminated their hearts like that poisonous water? Where, why is it that doubt is lying dormant in their hearts where worship ought to erupt? The answer is that these people, we, we, when we zoom out and examine the whole book of Peter, we see that these people are denying some very fundamental doctrines. Um, if you were to look over just in chapter 3 and verse 4, Peter is laying out their argument. They say in chapter 3, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. Translation, where is he? Where is this God that said that he is coming back? When they looked out at the world and they saw the evil of the world, they said, why isn't God addressing these things? If God is really there, Peter, Paul, apostles, as you say that he is, where is he? Where is God? And during that time, it seems like what some of these members are, have done is they've drank from Epicurean philosophy. The Epicureans were a, a group of people in that time that particularly their fundamental tenets were there either are no gods or the gods are so aloof that they are no longer concerned with this world. When they looked at the problem of evil out in the world, they said this is evidence that 
God can't be a just God or the gods are not participating in this world because how could they and allow this to happen? They said the gods are not engaged in human affairs and what occurs does so by chance, not because of divine intervention. Peter, and we'll see in a couple of weeks, Peter will hold out, once we get to chapter three, we'll see that Peter holds out these past instances of judgment, like when God flooded the world. And Peter says that these people that are raising this issue of uh, this complaint, this protest against God are willfully ignorant of the fact that God has dealt out punishment in the past. And even today, it's often the same people who will be quick to raise an accusation against God for not dealing with evil that will be the same people when they look at accounts in the Old Testament where God does deal with evil and say that he's too harsh, too extreme, that God shouldn't punish in that manner. And Peter says the reason that God has not carried out this punishment yet is that because he is patient and gracious and desiring more of his children to come to him. Now, I know that that some in this room and in this church, I know that you wrestle with the same question of just where is God? It seems like it's been so long since the events in the scriptures take place. But I find that Second Peter can be a, a boon to you, can be a, a help to you if you consider the fact that in the 21st century, we're dealing with questions. We're raising questions that were already being raised in the first century. And here you have an apostle, the apostle Peter, who is one who stands in the gap, so to speak, between those who are raising these questions of how long is it going to take and actually being one that was there with Christ when he was walking the earth. That's why he opens up this letter, if you've been here in past weeks, the way that he does by saying that we were there. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him on the mount. We saw his glory. We saw him touch and heal. We saw him declare things that confounded the wisest of people. Peter says, we were there. And that's why he takes it upon himself to say, don't give in to that doubt, that skepticism. He says in chapter three, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. What may seem long to us is not truly long at all for the Lord. And he works in his perfect timing. But these people who deny this, they say in verse 12, he says, but these like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming or slandering or speaking irreverently about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction. This coming judgment when God pours out his righteous vindication and establishes justice in the earth, those who are allowing themselves to be pulled along by this current, this polluted thought, stream of thought, who do not wrestle to fight and trust and rest in the scriptures and in the God of the scriptures will utterly be, ultimately be destroyed. That's what they believe. 
And the question is, what do you believe? Are these same type of thought patterns being entertained in your mind? If so, you would do well to sit at the feet of Peter as this man stares into eternity on the brink of death with nothing to gain. He's not trying to get a movement of followers or amass some type of of donation for his uh, preaching skills. He's simply saying, I'm on my way out to go see him. Remember this before I go. My second question, what were their actions? So these are their beliefs. How do these, be- these beliefs begin to materialize into their actions? He says in verse 13, first he continues the thought from verse 12, uh, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. That's their ultimate lot. He says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Essentially, the progression was this. God is not there. God is not looking over this world. There is no punishment for sin, so let's do what we want. Let's do what we want to do, the impulses we feel, the the desires that we feel, rather than exercising some type of restraint. Let us dive fully into them. He says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. This is Talking, speaking of sexual immorality, of drunkenness, and it's, it's meant to stand out when Peter says that they do so in the daytime. Even the ancients recognized that night was the time when sinful practice was carried out, drunkenness, gluttony, immorality. The early church father, John Chrysostom, said, for it is just as corrupt and wicked men do all things as in the night escaping the notice of all and enclosing themselves in darkness. For tell me, does not the adulterer watch for the evening and the thief for the night? Does not the violator of the tombs carry on all his trade in the night? That's the normal way in which we conceal our sin or we feel better about committing sin in the darkness, in the quiet and seclusion. These church members, good church folk, are reveling in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes where Christ is trying to raise a bride and purify a bride. Paul says in in Ephesians 5.27, that is without blot or blemish. Not only do these people contain blots, spots, and blemishes, but they are themselves blots and blemishes. They're reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. The idea of, of feasting was, was common in the Mediterranean world. The feast, uh, we see a glimpse of it in 1 Corinthians 11 when talk, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper happening as a feast. This is, was a common practice in the ancient world. Christians reappropriated it, but feasting was very common, and it was broken up into two parts. You feast for the first half of, uh, of the night, and then the rest of the night is just dedicated to drinking and camaraderie, and it just slowly moves on, just at a steady cadence, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into drunkenness, at least in pagan cultures. There was one ancient uh, Greek who advised, he said, of people that go to these feasts, these drinking parties, he said, if possible, avoid drinking parties altogether. But if ever occasion arises when you must be present, rise and take your leave before you become intoxicated. For when the mind is impaired by wine, 
It is like chariots which have lost their drivers. For just as these plunge along in wild disorder when they miss the hands which should guide them, so the soul stumbles again and again when the intellect is impaired. And these church members have allowed the Lord's Supper feast to devolve and disintegrate into a pagan, drunken feast. He says in verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. These, these banquets were a time that were, were known as a place where adultery specifically took place. There was a, an ancient poet also during this time, a Roman poet who described the best venues for, quote, women to be caught as theaters and banquets. And he writes this eloquent poem of a, a, a woman and her lover who go to a, a, one of these banquets and she sits down next to her husband and all the while she's flirting with her lover and they're exchanging different glances and all, it's the, the thrill of not being caught by her husband is like, this was something that was celebrated and just spread during that time. And that's a glimpse of what's happening in the church when Paul said, or Peter says, during this time, this eyes are full of adultery. They have let themselves go and immersed in sexual immorality. They have so habitually practiced these things. Their words have become their actions. Their actions have become habits that Peter says that they are now trained in an athletic sense, like those who train for the Olympic games, they have trained themselves in wickedness. And then he provides an, an example, an, an ancient archetype of one who participated in this type of sin in the same way. In verses 15 through 16, he says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. What he's referring to is an episode back in Numbers chapter 22 where this pagan uh, prophet, Balaam, was commissioned by King Balak to prophesy an oracle of judgment and of, of, um, of, of cursing upon the people of Israel. And God comes in and intervenes and, and speaks to him supernaturally through his own donkey. An angel speaks through uh, the animal to Balaam and, and condemns him and forbids him from prophesying this curse upon the people of Israel. And Balaam, we see later in the story, in his stubbornness, in his rebellion, in his refuse, refusal to just submit to the word of God, he, see, he looks for another way to entice the people of Israel, to entice them to sexual immorality, to sleeping with pagan women and abandoning their God. This is the age-old pattern of this devolution of thought leading to corrupt actions. It says in verse 17, they are waterless springs, mist driven by a storm. That is, they appear to be life-giving, and yet they are not. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. 
Again, like I said in the beginning, this is an extreme example, right? And so we're tempted to say, well, today's sermon doesn't address me because I'm not there yet. I have room to go. I have wiggle room here with God. But are you caught in the same current of thought and of practice of allowing what you believe about God or rather what you disbelieve about God to influence your actions that God doesn't really see this or God won't really punish me for this and all of our closet sins or quiet pride issues in the midst of our marriages or just lack of patience with our children, lack of forgiveness for those who have wronged us, even at the most subtle level those areas which we have compromised and we refuse to to yield to God reflect a lack of belief in our thoughts. And Peter would advise us to turn, to repent. At the bottom of all this, our third question, what are they seeking? What is it that they really want? He says in verse 19, they promise freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This is the main verse. I just want to camp out briefly here for a minute. The goal of every philosophical school or system of thought that has ever existed has essentially been designed and crafted to answer this question of how can human beings be free, free from their circumstances, their oppressive environments, free from desire, some people say, free from oppression, and so the goal is liberation, but this innate sense that we want to transcend our current circumstance, our current situation. How is it that we can be free? And while all these different philosophical schools, they point to their world and solutions in their world to answer this question, Christ holds out an alternative. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It was interesting, I was reading in an article uh, just this week that those who are neuroscientists who have studied the brain, even outside of Christian circles, it's just accepted fact that there is a part of your brain in the parietal lobe that is responsible for you being able to discern the distinction between yourself and everything in the outside world, of being aware of yourself and everything in the outside world. And yet through intense meditation and through intense prayer, what happens in your brain is you're able to silence this part of your brain, this part of your brain that causes you to feel a distinction between you and the outside world or what's transcendent, what's beyond you. And even secular scientists call this the the God center of the brain because it has no other function other than for human beings to be able to silence it, and be able to experience the transcendent. 
Now they explain this away by saying this is simply an evolutionary uh, construct that people in wealthy nations no longer utilize because they don't need it because it's merely a, a survival mechanism. But there's another possibility, and that is that people in more wealthy, affluent, comfortable situations who believe that they have found their satisfaction in this life simply cease to, uh, to press beyond themselves, not because there's no need and no reality out there, but because they've been contented in themselves. All that to say, you were designed for a freedom that transcends this world. Before we go, I just wanted to share a brief clip of a missionary couple that had gone, if you never heard of the story Itao, it's of a missionary couple that went to Papua New Guinea into an unreached people group to spread the gospel there. They had spent months there. They didn't just come and berate them with the gospel, but they spent months there learning the people, starting by uh, drawing a map of the village and how it was laid out and then drawing another map of how this village was related and situated to other villages and then another map of where those villages were found in the, provi- in the province and then in the country and then in the greater world and show them where U.S. and Australia and Israel and other major uh, significant countries were. And, they talk- and then they begin to share how the story of God, the word of God, traveled from Israel all the way to this people group now. And they spent two months just laying out Old Testament stories of just building a framework for understanding this God that entered the world in Christ and sacrificed himself for them. And this clip is after three months of teaching, two months of the Old Testament, one month of walking through the life of Christ, when it finally came time to describing the crucifixion of Christ, this video captures the freedom that they experienced in that moment. At the end of his letter, Peter says that God is not slack concerning his promises. He's not slow to fulfill his promise. 
as some count slowness, but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that they might experience that type of freedom of what they were truly designed for. And ultimately, Revelation, the end of this story, says that they will be ushered into the new heavens and the new earth, where Revelation 22, verse 1, says there is a new river of the water of life that is clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That is our paradise. That's where we're heading. May you make it a reality in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, you know that with the constant ebb and flow of life that we are always in a state of flux, either drawing near to you or being pulled away by the undercurrent of earthly desires, fleshly desires, of desires that cannot quench and satiate our deepest desire, Lord, that we have been hardwired to press into this transcendent God who is beyond us, who is infinitely above us, superior to us, and yet that we were designed to know and to draw near to and to love and to experience his embrace. And Lord, I just pray that you would use uh, these words, that these would not be lost on us. This is Peter's warning not to allow ourselves to be carried further and further down this polluted stream of heretical thought, of doubt, of looking at our world around us through our perspective and not perceiving it through your perspective, that you are an eternal God. With you, one day is as a thousand years, and you have determined, you have decreed from long ago that you will punish all wrong, all sin, that you will establish equity on this earth, that those who have been harmed the most in this life will in that day see your righteousness upheld. Yes, Lord, just do it. And help us to walk in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.